And we are back with another episode of the Starter Allowance Podcast. My name is Andrew Grismore. I am your host, and this is the August 14th edition of the show. First off, I want to say thanks to our guests and hope you enjoyed last week's episode with Craig Milkowski going around the horn. I didn't quite get the job done, but hey, there's always next time. That being said, we're going to have some really, really fantastic guests' stories lined up for you guys as we get into our Kentucky Derby countdown over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you stay tuned to the Starter Allowance podcast. Like, rate, subscribe, leave a comment, and This week, we're going to get right into our kickoff interview. You've probably seen their names in the title, but I'm going to throw it over to Stu from the StuCast because he and I are going to do this interview together. Right after that, we've got our handicapping show with Stu and Ryan Dickey, so stick around till the end. Get your picks for Saturday and the couple of stakes races that we've got over at Saratoga and enjoy the show. Take it away, Stu. Hello and welcome. Different voice this week to start off the Starter Allowance podcast, but Andrew's here. Andrew, say hello. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. You did great. Great job with the intro. Um, Today, we got an awesome show. We start with with two guys that we have immense respect for. Marshall Graham, part of the tandem that runs 10 Strike Racing, the great outfit over there and the great Pat Cummings of the Thoroughbred Ideas Foundation. You guys, thank you so much for coming on. It's a real honor and pleasure for you to give us uh, some of your time, and uh, we really, truly appreciate it. Uh, Certainly a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having us on. Now, I know we were talking uh, just a little bit before we got on, and some of this, I, you guys have done some uh, pretty lengthy interviews, so I, I really want to push folks, not just because he's on later, but towards in the money media. Uh, Pat, your recent interview on the Mike Maloney show with PTF and where you look at the, the shenanigans of that, that pick six over at Pleasanton Del Mar, that's amazing. That took like 20 questions I had for you. And then Marshall, you you had a great interview. If people go back and check out that JK plus one, you kind of touch on things I didn't even know. I still don't fully understand. We'll get to I do have a question for you about it later. But thank you guys for being stewards of the industry. And uh, I, I, I guess I'm going to just start with Marshall on the ADW since it's on my mind. And Pat, feel free. These are open-ended questions. But with ADWs, okay, so what – we see rebates. I, me, me and Andrew are small-time guys. You know, we'll bet $150 pick four and get in a fight about, you know, whether we should be betting that much, you know. Uh, what, what do rebates do for the industry? Because is that the same thing as the sign-up bonus? Are they hurting the industry? I hear different things. Can you kind of break some of that off for us? Well, rebates generally are, are good for the industry. I mean, ADWs have margins that they work with. So when we think about the money that we bet through our ADWs, through our online accounts, and of course now with the, you know most tracks having gone remote with no fans, our only options are to play through our ADWs. Well, ADWs send money back to the host track, whoever's doing the racing. Uh, they pay all sorts of fees like a tote fee, 
like a fee to Roberts who broadcast the races. And then the remainder uh, they hold on to, they keep. Now for their retail players, for their smaller bettors, they may hold on to all that money. But for players who bet more, uh, they may, they may uh, uh, give them rebates in order to encourage them to bet more. So they are effectively looking to optimally price a wager to get the most wagering dollars uh, out of their players and to, for them to get the highest profit margin. So they, it, they tr they're treating it like a, a, a sort of a, an optimization problem where they're trying to, again, uh, get the most profits out of the players. So for a high volume player, if they can induce them to wager more by giving them a higher rebate, they'll in turn make more money back because that player is wagering more. And so it's like volume discounting. It's what economists call second degree price discrimination. And again, it doesn't affect uh, what the tracks get or what Roberts gets or what the tote gets, right? Because they're working from their margin. So the ADW margin is what they're working with to establish their rebates. And so, um, look, their rebates out there, certain ADWs offer them two fairly small players. If you bet $50,000 a year, um, uh, there are uh, opportunities out there to get rebates. And the more you bet, the more rebates you can get. So, you know, in my mind, it's not a bad thing. Now, I do think there's this sort of broader question of is enough money going to the horsemen? Is, uh, you know, are there other entities that are taking too big of a piece? Um, you know, is there a disconnect between, you know, what, you know, the purses and betting um, that exists? I think those are different questions. I think fundamentally, the, the takeout rate, the price of, of uh, betting on the races is too high as it is set through the takeout. And so anything we can do to, to lower the price is good for players. Now there's a grand inequity involved, not only with the fact that you have to bet more to get rebates, but there are certain states where rebates aren't available. California, for example, Virginia has a high uh, source market fee to where, uh, you know, if you're living in Virginia, uh, they, the, there's a, an excess fee that, that doesn't, that as a result of that fee doesn't permit the ADWs to give you rebates. And so there are different states where uh, rebates aren't available or where they're limited. So, um, you know, that inequity is somewhat of a problem, but rebates themselves, I think are a good thing. Reason number 74, I hate this state. Uh, I live in Virginia. This state is god-awful. Please, somebody help me. Marshall, can I move in with you, Pat? You got room? <laughs> uh, you touched on some, Marshall, uh, about the horsemen, and it lines up with what you were saying, Pat, at, uh, during your interview, that the horseman's role is vital, that we need to, we need to uh, get that dialogue working. When you came out, PTF's got a huge platform, uh, and you came out and kind of said that in some of your uh, Thoroughbred Idea Foundation papers, which are, the, these white papers are phenomenal. They're great. Uh, have you heard anything back? Has that kind of stirred up a hornet's nest or are people just kind of same old, same old? Well, I think at any time that uh, people are talking and engaging on this topic and finding ways to uh, better uh, engage um, the sport, its participants on a regular basis. Uh, th this dialogue is healthy for horse racing, right? It is healthy. And, you know, this is a sport that relies on people betting in order to keep it going. 
And that is not the case with baseball or basketball or any other professional sport uh, except racing. Uh, we need people betting to, to continue the operation of the sport. And so what makes things dangerous in racing is that uh, the actual customer who's making a bet can walk away and never tell anyone, right? If you own a horse, if you train horses, if you're breeding horses, you have physical assets that if you say, I'm done, I need to walk away from, then I have to really spend a lot of time to unwind that. From, from a, a, a customer standpoint, the wagering customer can simply get up and just go away. They, they don't have anything to unwind. They can shift their place somewhere else. So these things are vitally important to talk about. And I think our position has been that these have not been discussed. These conversations have not evolved. And in the relationship, the way in which racing exists in America, the racetracks, the bet uh, takers, and the horsemen have to all be in alignment on the contract that is offered to enable interstate wagering. So in races at, let's take a track, for example, Evangeline Downs, the, the horsemen's group that exists and represent horsemen at Evangeline Downs needs to be in agreement with Evangeline Downs and the ADWs who are taking this, whether it's Twin Spires, Express Bet, TVG, uh, Amwager, um, Naira Bets, et cetera, any, any of them, they need to come to an agreement and sign a contract. And for a long period of time, I mean, we believe that the racetracks themselves have, uh, you know, they're looking out for their best situation and the horsemen need to be looking out for their best interest too. And at the same time, there's a tremendous delicate ecosystem where we rely on bettors of all types, the high volume players, the heavily rebated players, the middle market players, and then the recreational guys, the weekend warriors. We need them too. We need all of these players in our market, but they all respond to different economic incentives or disincentives in different fashions. And I think what we're, what we're alluding to is that there's been too much focus on a certain type of player um, that's bringing in a, a large amount of, um, certainly of liquidity to the wagering markets, but we need to consider the effects of that on everyone. And our, our biggest ask in the most recent white paper, what we talked about with, with Pete Fornital and, and what we have in, in, in a lot of different ways over the past couple of years, is to start bringing people to the table to recognize there's an issue and start evolving it. And that there has not been enough attention paid in this area over the past couple of years. Yeah, and, and, and Pat, building on, on what you said from a betting perspective, I really like how you broke it down into the different kinds of betters where you have the high volume, the middle market, and then the recreational. Something that really is, I think has parallels to that is what's happening right now on the ownership side of the house and uh, the the veil that kind of exists when it comes to getting into ownership and the different levels that you can get into, especially now when you go on Twitter and you're seeing ads for horses that are running in the top three-year-old races where you can have a, a micro share of them, or then you move into this middle level of other partnerships where you can have the five to 10 to 20%. And then there's the full blown, okay, I'm going to own 25 of my, my own horses. 
I feel like very similarly, and this is a question for both of you guys, uh, there is a veil that we have to kind of get out of the way when it comes to ownership and the different levels and the markups that go on there. Very similarly to the fact that I bet for years, not realizing that rebates were even a thing. So uh, what do you guys think? And I guess we can start with Marshall on this, but what do you guys think about uh, the new kind of ownership, the level of transparency that there is there, I would say going from a micro share level all the way up to the highest level of partnerships, uh, how markups are involved and uh, the understanding of owners that they have to go through to get to a point where they even know what's going on when they have 5% of a horse. Uh, you wanna comment a little bit about that and you can start with the micro shares and maybe work your way up. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, I mean, uh, uh, I, um, Clay Sanders and I run 10 Strike Racing, you know, we have sort of viewed our role as owners um, in, in, in partnerships as, you know, together, the two of us could own three or four or five horses. If we get all of our buddies involved, uh, then we can own more horses. And so we've always been a sort of low cost outfit. Both of us have uh, day jobs. And, um, you know, for us, it just gives us more action. Uh, you know, I think that that stepping into the ownership game is very hard. I, I do understand the sort of markups that exist and the, the fact that, that, you know, that most people don't have the ability to pool their money or don't have access to, you know, high-end horses. Um, but look, I, even as a low markup or no markup prospect, the the chances of making money owning horses is 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 i mean it's very hard i mean it, it's you know if we think about a takeout rate of 20 percent on betting the horses uh, you know the the ratio to purse money to the expenditure on horses is uh probably less than 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 that 80 percent difference and if you throw on top of it you know buying into a syndicate with you know extensive markups um, you know, I think that it would be nearly impossible to make money. Now, again, for many people, ownership is a consumption activity. For a lot of our partners, we, we tell them, look, this is not an investment. This is a consumption. If you don't enjoy, you know, going to the races, uh, you don't get pleasure out of watching a horse's win, then you shouldn't do this. This isn't, a, this isn't an investment activity. So many owners, uh, and, and I imagine especially those who, who buy into these partnerships are looking for it as a consumption activity. And maybe they're using this as a way to learn to eventually buy horses on their own. Um, so, you know, again, I do, I do understand that there's a different aspect to it. You know, we don't often think about it enough, but a lot of horse players, um, you know, understand that in the long run, they'll be losers, but they do, but they, you know, enjoy the gambling part of it. And it's a consumption activity to them as well. So, um, uh, so that's my, you know, that's my, thoughts on it but again I, I it ownership is is very challenging under the under the the best scenarios with a zero percent markup right and, and we know that from that ownership perspective there's always going to be at the top level i mean hopefully there will always be owners that are willing to spend way more than they know they, they could ever make back up in purse money or even when it comes to if they have a very successful horse the it becoming a stallion on the low percentage that that happens or having one of the great broodmare prospects but do you guys think that there's a way for 
just like if you're a horse player and you decide, hey, I want to do this and take it somewhat seriously, yes, I understand that it's hard to beat the markup and, and hard to beat the few professionals that there are out there at this. But you know that it's going to be fun and you can give yourself the opportunity to get better and to lose less and to have more fun. Uh, you know, isn't there a way, and it doesn't seem like it's set up like this right now, other than a, a select few uh, partnership groups, and, and I'm going to feature some of those on the podcast coming up. So look forward to that. But ownership groups are, are just act or, or syndicates that give you the closest opportunity to break even and have fun as possible. Like it just seems like the way things are set up right now, when you're looking at, and I'm, again, it's it, it varies across all the different partnerships that there are out there from 0% markup and then just a percentage of the, the purse money or a high, you know, up to 50% markup on the initial purchase price of a horse. And that doesn't even go into the incentivi incentivization of the, the, the groups to pay more upfront for horses so that they make more upfront in the beginning. Again, not saying that everybody does that, but the model incentivizes it. There's gotta be a way where you can find something if you want to be on the ownership side that gives you the opportunity to at least have fun and try to break even versus just saying, you know what, I'm going to throw money at this. I want to go to the races. I want to be treated like a king and then go from there. Any I don't have a good answer for that. I don't, I don't know. Um, I don't, you know, there are, you know, there are trade-offs in all this. Uh, you know, sometimes a markup you're paying for, uh, you know, they, those are for outfits that have had a lot of success, that have the right connections, that, 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 that are able to use high-end trainers, that are able to give you a piece, you know, a smaller piece, but of a, of a, um, of a potentially better prospect. So, I, you know, I have, um, you know, I, I don't, while I, you know, while I am involved in a, you know, very low markup operation, I do, um, you know, I do uh, have, you know, I do sort of have admiration and, and sort of understand some of these bigger, uh, bigger syndicates and, and, and how they operate and, and what's involved. And, and I do know that, that anyone running a syndicate, it is, um, you know, it, it is, it is a lot of work and there is a lot that goes in, into buying a racehorse and managing a racehorse and, um, and the sort of expertise you get from, um, you know, from, you know, from ownership groups that know what they're doing. But look, I mean, it's ultimately a challenge. When we bet horses, we get to bet horses, um, you know, we get to bet a race and then, uh, you know, we win or lose that race. And then, you know, we're able to turn the page and bet the next race. And so we're able to get a lot of repetitions in. When you own a racehorse, um, you know, even if you're buying smaller pieces of racehorses, you can't buy you know, you, you, there's a certain limited number you can buy. And, um, and so you aren't able to get the repetitions. It's, it's, it's hard to escape what might be this sort of uh, uh, randomness that occurs, right? So, you know, you don't necessarily even know if you're, you know, good or bad or lucky or unlucky. And so, you know, I think of over, you know, over the, the number of yearlings that we bought, you know, we bought, you know, I don't know, 20, 25, 30, 35 yearlings over the past, over the past five years. And that's, you know, that's in a sense equivalent to making like 30, 35 bets, right? Mm -hmm. So you just, you don't know whether, you know, you've gotten lucky with a horse or you haven't. And I'll, 
our, our first uh, our first yearling sale that uh, we were involved in, uh, our agent was Liz Crow. Uh, it was Liz Crow's first year of buying horses, and she gave us the the choice of an Uncle Mo uh, filly or uh, the filly that became Mon or Monomoy Girl, and uh, we uh, we chose the Uncle Mo filly because of the breeding, and uh, of course Monomoy Girl is uh, you know Oaks and. Uh, champion and all of this so it's just hard to predict that out of tapazar drumette you know <laughs> yeah, exactly exactly so uh you know that's right we was, you have a choice of the first two fillies she ever buys one of them's monomoy girl and we of course had the first choice and chose the other one um and you know you just there's a lot of randomness involved in ownership just like there's a lot of randomness involved in betting right I and mean, we don't like to think about it but there's a lot of randomness involved in betting we just get to get so many repetitions to know whether we're good at it or whether we're not um, where the luck all evens out so um that's the tricky that's the tricky thing about ownership i think i i think the one you know the broader concern i have of ownership is the consolidation right we have you know horses that are you know we have too few owners in the game um, we have too few trainers in the game. And so I think it is somewhat refreshing that this is a year where we have tis the law, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, trained by Barkley tag and, uh, and has a uh, Sacatoga stables, which is a, you know, just a, uh, you know, a regular bunch of, you know, a regular sort of ownership group, right. As opposed to sort of high end owners who own a bunch of horses with, you know, one of the top five trainers. Hey, Pat, is, has the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation looked at these syndicate partnership models? I mean, clearly, shout out 10 Strike Racing. You cost me so much money because you win a lot of races. Uh, but, you know, some people are doing it right. Like, you know, 10 Strike, uh, Iron Horse, Dreammaker, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, we tend to focus on negatives because it's horse racing Twitter. We, have you guys looked into this and, and taken a look at, at what syndicates are doing to the, to the larger industry? You know, we haven't, um, but our, I would say that our, one of our main kind of side projects last summer was, was investigating the um, kind of the growth of these micro share uh, partnerships. Um, so my Racehorse, uh, Sport BLX, um, some others that were involved. Um, uh, there's a group called Commonwealth that's emerging. There's a few others. And, and we were looking to see if there was some space in that uh, arena to operate. And realistically, what we found is that, uh, you know, the, the um, securities regulations and, and having, you know, people having the ability to trade shares was, was really quite difficult. And it hadn't fully evolved to that point. So, I think that as the regulation is going to catch up to it, we're going to see more and more of that grow and emerge. Uh, we haven't gotten there yet, um, but our focus has mostly been on the, on the pure economics of, of uh, racing and, and how we can improve the sport for horse owners by making it better for horse players. And we think there's a tremendous trickle down that comes from you know, uh, presenting the racing uh, at, at its best to the wagering audience and how that can really benefit everyone else. Part of that we've seen at the spa two weekends ago, Sadler's Joy uh, cost me a bunch of money. And then I get it back this weekend with American Sailor getting bumped up, both very contentious DQs, horse racing Twitter, go figure, disagreed on 
who fouled who and who bumped what. Okay, Michael Scott style. Talk to me like I'm a five-year-old. What is category one? What is category two? Marshall, you may have to hold my hand on this. I'm, 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 I'm trying to understand. So, so from a, um, the American style of rules in adjudicating horse racing has been termed internationally as category two. And I think they called it category two because they prefer category one, which is what everyone else in the world now uses. Uh, here's the basic point. Um, there's a general philosophy that states have adopted um, that, that emerged over time. And the rules used to be that if you fouled a horse in a race with, with absolutely no concern for anything else, else that happened, you know, where those horses finished, you committed a foul, you got demoted. Okay. That was viewed in, say, the 50s and 60s as, as being a little onerous, that it was a little, little heavy-handed. So they, they amended the rules over time, state by state, to suggest that if the foul altered the finish, if it may have cost a horse a placing, without any regard to what that placing was, first versus second or you know, 17th versus 18th, um, that there would be a demotion uh, tied to whether or not it cost a horse a placing. Internationally, the rules evolved much, much better and much more clear over time. And what we now see in just about every jurisdiction outside of North America is a, a, a greatly reduced amount of demotions or disqualifications. Whereas in the US, we still see you know, a, a fairly high number of, of times where races end up in the hands of the stewards. And the rules as they exist, Al, and you know, look, uh, we, we could get into it on its own podcast if you'd like at some point in the future, I'd be happy to do that. But um, as they exist now, they still in the US operate under this category two philosophy of, did it cost a horse a placing? Did it alter the finish? The words differ from state to state. That's part of the problem. It requires too much um, subjectivity on the part of the stewards. It's unfair to the stewards. And I think it's unfair to the horse players overall. And we think that the international standard that has evolved, the category one standard, does yield a more consistent uh, result-oriented product for all participants. It's easier to understand easier for the stewards to apply and presents a better product for racing. What will that mean? Far fewer demotions, but it has to be met with an increase in stewarding standards, greater transparency, greater reporting. Um, and so, you know, if, if you look and you say, well, this looks like it could go either way. Um, uh, it just gets so situational um, and, and it's unfair for everybody involved. And simulcasting has, has only made it worse and, and really kind of uh, highlighted these differences. The growth of international wagering and our ability to play races 24 hours a day makes it worse because one customer's experience sitting at home in Kentucky or Virginia or wherever and betting a race in Australia or Dubai or South Africa or Singapore or Hong Kong or France or England or Ireland or uh, just about anywhere else is going to be different than what you have in North America because of the way in which the races are adjudicated. Thank you for that. Okay. Now I feel, now I feel like I'm Marshall Graham type smart about this stuff and people can come at me. Uh, for you gentlemen, I'm going to last question before, cause I know we're headed towards a hard out here. 
Um, I make you both the czar of horse racing. You get to pick one thing to change immediately. Without a fight, it just, you know, you're Thanos, snap your fingers, it happens. Marshall, what's the one thing you change uh, to better this game? Well, I mean, I, I mean, if I had one, if I could snap my fingers and be one thing, I would change pricing. I mean, I, I would figure out a way to to bring all the the um, the the industry together to dramatically lower pricing and to make us competitive with uh, other wagering opportunities out there. So there there are lots that need to be changed, lots of things that need to be changed. But I think it goes right back to the top, right? Is and and at the top is the fact that that the game is is mispriced. It is priced based upon, uh, you know, scenarios before state lotteries, before casinos, uh, where horse racing was the only game in town. And, um, and a lot of the money in the past was used as a source of tax revenue. Now, horse racing is generally subsidized. And so, you know, I'd like to see the game priced much better for all players. I love it. Pat, where you at? I'm going with uh, stewards reporting. Um, I think it's something that could e uh, pretty easily happen. Uh, it would be a dramatic change to stewards themselves and their day in and day out operations. It'd be a change for the jockeys too. But um, what I mean when I say this is that uh, in many other parts of the world, uh, stewards uh, report on daily incidents, their observations of the race, what they see, conversations they have with jockeys, trainers, um, and they hold participants far more accountable to their day in, day out activities that we don't even come close to uh, in America. And I believe that what this would do is it would yield a much greater focus on integrity. Uh, it would hold participants accountable. It would hold jockeys accountable for the decisions they make in races. It would increase the overall level of customer confidence on a wagering level. Uh, and it is something I think that is quote unquote easily doable, but I, I can't disagree with Marshall's assessment at all. Uh, the way I look at this is we need to do X and Y and Z and A and B and C. It's not one or the other, even though I know that was the way the question was formed. <laughs> um, but but I, I do think that, that we need to be additive not um, selective. We need to be doing a lot of different things. It's going to be hard. It's going to take a lot of time, uh, but it, it's worth it. At the end of the day, there is still $11 billion that is flowing through the, the racing wagering ecosystem just within the United States. There is still a product here, and we, 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 can't, we, we need to kind of stem the decline. There is a decline. People don't necessarily see it as such, but there is, and uh, I, I really think an increased focus on integrity is, is really the first, uh, the first feature and the first facet that I would focus on. All right, gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for your time. You can find Marshall Graham. Just type in your Google machine, 10strikeracing.com, 10 Strike Racing. It's everywhere. It's taken over. Uh, you can follow him at Truxton Stables on the Twitter machine and Pat Cummings, you are at Pat Cummings TIF and the executive director of the Thoroughbred Idea Foundation, racingthinktank.com. It's a must bookmark because the work you, you guys do and Marshall with your, with your uh, 
you know, uh, positive expectancy takeout rates of, of these big, uh, bigger race days and bigger race pick sixes are really interesting. And I think it helps educate the younger guys like me coming up in this game. So I can't thank you gentlemen enough for coming on and, and open invitation whenever, whenever to come back on. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thanks. And there it is. Awesome, awesome interview. Thanks again to Marshall and Patton. I think these are the kinds of voices we need to hear more of and get out there more when it comes to the horse racing industry. So with that in mind, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll get right into our Saratoga Saturday handicapping session. Hey everybody, this is Stu from the StuCast inviting you to come join me every week as I interview exciting guests and folks you may not have heard of as we delve into all different aspects of sports. Come check us out at StuCast Sports on Twitter. Wherever you get your podcast from, we're there. Thank you and back to the show. And we are back with the handicapping session for Saturday at Saratoga. And we're going to get right into it. We're going to start looking at race eight, which is the Saratoga Derby on the turf. And we're looking at the return of Decorated Invader, who's already won at Saratoga in this meet and the graded stake. He's coming back. He's the heavy favorite. And Stu, what do you think of his chances in here? I think that's where we have to start. Yeah, I mean, he has great chances. Uh, seven to five, I mean, he is the most likely winner. I don't know that I would say that he has to win here. Uh, that last race was really weird, the Hall of Fame. So get smoking. It was smoking on the front end. Uh, I don't know what this horse had, but this horse was just, I'm going to the front. I'm going to try and go so fast and get so much distance that I can just carry it home. Almost did too. And, uh, you know, get, that's a testament to Tom Bush and get smoking and, and the type of horse that he can train up. The, that race was a little fake though. To me, it was a fake fast kind of pace setup, and decorated invader was able to sit second the whole way. And when the pack finally started to get there, Decorated Invader, it was easy for him to put away domestic spending and the like. Um, so I, I think that last race is a little weird, which makes me look elsewhere. Uh, I, I think you have to use Decorated Invader, but, you know, Field Pass caught my eye. And just in how my mind's processing this, the six Colonel Liam's going to go. The eight get smoking's gonna go. I think Colonel Liam, uh, with Todd Pletcher and Javier in the irons, I think they're gonna kind of let get smoking just go, but he's not gonna get seven lengths ahead. They might let him go a couple lengths in front. They're gonna push a pace on him, and Field Pass seems like the the early beneficiary. I like being drawn outside instead of decorating invader being drawn inside. I think that's not the greatest spot, uh, especially on, on this, these longer turf races. I, I think you could get boxed in to some extent um, just from the pace and uh, give me field pass at six to one. I think I got to include them on my ticket. And we're joined by Ryan Dickey. What do you, what do you think on this one? 
So here's one of the things that I hate about betting on horses is I can't bet decorated invader, although I think he's the most likely winner, uh, like Stu said. I also have landed on field pass, but this is the part that I don't like. I don't like it when the horse that I think is the best value, the one that I want to use over the, over the favorite, has a couple question marks for me. And then these are my question marks. Um, I, I see, okay, first of all, this race is a mile and three sixteenths, so it's a little bit more than a mile and an eighth, and it's a little bit less than a mile and a quarter. He ran his best time form speed figure at a mile and an eighth, but he went out to the lead. He was up out front the whole entire time. If you look at his last three races, last race, he was, you know, sitting off the pace. He was fifth at first call by four lengths or by three and a half lengths. Then the race before that, the one that we're talking about, he was ahead by a length. He was the speed. And then back at, uh, on May 23rd at Churchill Downs, he was 12, 10 lengths back. So he's had three different running styles the last three times he's raced. What are we going to see from him here? I don't know. He doesn't know. Uh, we, we nobody. Knows. So, hey Ryan, does that speak, to, Ryan? In your mind, does that speak to versatility? Because I kind of like seeing that. It 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 really it really does. But you, we know what decorated invader is going to do, and obviously he's going to be a much shorter price. But at least we know what we're going to get from him. Um, Fair field, field field pass. I mean, okay. So Gaffalione was aboard two two back when he won. I mean, he's won what? four of his five races this year. It's not like he's a slouch. We're going to get a much better number of it from, from him. I just am not 100% sure. I'm not 100% sure of what his tactics are going to be, and I don't like having a bet on a horse where I don't have a really good idea of what he's going to do. I think to that end, too, uh, Tyler's been riding very aggressive, and he's been the – one guy uh, in these turf races where there doesn't seem to be any speed. Nobody wants the front. He'll go out and take it. And he's, he's won at some big prices in the, during the Saratoga meet. Um, but I, I'll give you this. I, I think Tyler's smart enough to realize the six and the eight are going to be going. And right. I think he's going to sit back and, and be close being stalking range because I think field pass excels at that more so than you know that that Churchill Downs race just seems like it's a, a product of you know no early pace and and he wasn't setting like just tremendously fast fractions yeah, yeah. the, I mean, the, I the thing that. that that worries me the most is that I'm not sure if we have seen the best of decorated invader uh, I, the last race was weird. Um, you know, it, but if you look at his last three, three races, he's kind of just let whatever happens happen in front of him, let whatever happens happen behind him. And it doesn't really matter. He just wins. So, and it just didn't seem like in his race at Belmont, he had to put his best effort out there to win. The only thing I'll give to the rest of the field is that I don't think the last race that he ran at Saratoga, the field was as strong as this one is. And the race w was a little weird. I like field pass as well. I like him a lot because he's a hard knocking horse. He's always game. He's always trying at the end. Uh, if you go back and watch a few of his races, he always tries. Um, I 
I don't like domestic spending at all, really. I didn't like him in the last race. I don't like him here. So I'd rather have if the odds are right at the end, sick field pass. But he, he's um, je- domestic spending, and I love Chad, and Chad's always scary. I just I don't know I don't know what the issue was last time, outside of just a not a good break. Yeah, um, I, 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 I like so him. I guess I guess for me, if I'm creating a ticket here. You know, decorated invaders, my A. I may use field pass as an A, too. Uh, Colonel Liam would be a B, and, you know, domestic spending, a B or a C for me. Because I, I think there's talent there. Uh, you're just, if you're going to bet on Chad and you're getting six to one, that's a pretty good deal. It's just, I worry about if he's going to break. I just don't Actually. think he's fast enough. Uh, but yeah. well, this is only his fourth start, so it's hard. It's hard to tell. Yeah, it's hard to tell how fast guess, he is. Yeah, I guess he could improve. But if Decorated Invader improves at all, then none of these have a chance. So, yeah, for for me, for me, if I make a trifecta ticket in this race, I'll go two seven over two seven eight over two seven eight. Yep. Because if you look, just look at the the progression for Decorated Invader time form figs. 81, 97, 95, 97, 109, 114, 113. And in the last two races, he barely had to try to finish. So if he steps up at all, it's just going to bury him. And I know that his connections will tell you that he's going to win. So let's, uh, let's go ahead and move on to the next one. It's definitely an interesting race, and it's definitely more competitive than the last one Decorated Invader was in. Uh, the money's bigger. The, uh, the competition's a little bit stiffer. And now – as we get into the Alabama, there's another clear horse to talk about. I'll let Ryan take the lead on Swiss Skydiver here. And uh, what are your thoughts? I think she should run in Kentucky Derby. And I know that a lot of people don't believe that. A lot of people think she should definitely go to the Oaks. But I think in this Kentucky Derby, she has a chance to hit the board. I think she's good enough against that group where she can hit the board. Um, yeah, this is only – less than a month away from the Derby. So she could do both. I think she wins here. I think she wins here easy and her stable mate and Votante or how the hell you say her name. I was not a very good student in French class. That's uh, right. Yeah. And Votante, maybe we'll call it. Uh, I, I, I think that horse is the clear second choice here. And I know Bonnie South is good. I know Harvey's little Goyle is, is good, but I, I think that this is a five, one exact, a straight, um, I, I really like Swiss Skydiver here. And like I said, I think she should run the Kentucky Derby. Yeah, the last time Harvey's Little Goyle ran, you really liked her. And I was really surprised. Her odds, I feel like, if you, uh, uh, Stu, if you click on Harvey's Little Goyle here, I think she went off at like just ridiculously high odds for that race. It kind of shot up at the end because money went elsewhere. And uh, I don't think she played as big of a long shot in the, the multi-leg wagers, but in, uh, to win, she paid a lot. So uh, props to Ryan on that one, calling out a winner with Harvey's little Goyle there. But um, yeah, Swiss skydiver, huge standout. And considering she ran second to Art Collector and it's looking like I mean, as far as Derby favoritism goes, we know it's going to be Tis the Law, but I, you got to figure our collector is going to be, you know, one of the top the second, as well. Second choice. Yeah, yeah, clear second choice, I think. So, With authentic coming in third. Yeah, yeah. 
She could. I, I agree with you. I think she could hit the board in the Derby. We'll see where you, where she goes. I mean, it's also a matter of I, I don't know where Gamine is going, but oh, she's going to the Oaks. Gamine's yeah. going to the Oaks. <laughs> I'd rather face the boys. Than... <laughs> I don't think I, I. I truthfully do not think Gamine. I Gamine could definitely hit the board, but. Um, I think I think if she were to, I don't know that Gamine wants wants a mile and a quarter. Yeah, I just yeah. I just I'm I'm very wary of that, and I think just on her talent alone, uh, just natural talent, she she can beat the rest of the females uh, in the Oaks. But when you got Tis the Law and Honor AP and Thousand Words coming at you, uh, I I just. I don't like her chances as much in the Derby. So with Skydiver, all you're really looking for, you're not necessarily, I mean, of course you want to win, but, you know, yeah, if you if you can uh, get to, you know, uh, a third, uh, a third place finish and hit the board, man, that's worth, that's worth buku bucks. So, I mean, I she's running a mile. She's running a mile and a quarter here. If she puts up a good number and wins this Alabama going away, and there's going to be plenty of reasons, plenty of reasons to think that she can, she can come back in, sure. in four weeks. Here, I mean, here's my issue with her. I, I the last three races, if you would have told me in May, or even June, if you would have said June seventh, hey, who's the best female? Philly in, in the country, I would have said, oh, Swiss Skydiver going away. Sure. That last race against our collector, you know, nothing nothing wrong with losing by three and a half. I mean, nothing wrong with that. Uh, my problem with this horse, I don't know if she wants a – I don't know if she wants a distance. I really don't know if she wants a distance. I mean, at a mile and 16th, she is deadly mile mile on 16 she is she's dangerous she'll, she'll beat you up i, I wanted to go fair point fair point. i want i wanted to go elsewhere because i think crystal ball is crystal ball is a speed ball and she is going one way and uh put up a hell of a battle with paris lights and i know she's not as fast as swiss skydiver but it could cause some issues, right? Uh, I think ideally Swiss Skydiver is probably going to just want to let Crystal Ball just go ahead and pull that move off like uh, she did in the fantasy, just letting Venetian Harbor go and then just, you know, bury her at the end. I think that's the game plan. The problem with that is, is that I think in these smaller fields, you have other horses that have some speed. I know, Andrew, you're not a fan, but Spice is Nice is probably going to sit a, a similar trip to Swiss Skydiver in my mind. And I'm not so sure that this horse who's very lightly raced, I'm not so sure we haven't seen the best of her yet. For And Todd Pletcher is lights out right now. I mean, he's just – everything he's throwing out there at Saratoga is running well. Uh I, I I got to expect there's going to be a forward progression from Spices Nice. I I think the horse is going to be able to get the mile and a quarter. Certainly, uh, 
you know, being out of curling and, and uh, you know, Bobby Flay cooked up some curry for this one. So you got to think it's going to get the, the distance. I'm going spices nice here. I, I kind of like how this race kind of sets up in my mind uh, for the two. Um, Andrew, what do you think? I don't want anything to do with spices nice. I didn't want her last time. She beat me. That's fine. Um, this hey, race... wait. Oh, Say here, more. Here, comes the, here comes the casual reference. Say more. <laughs> Say, okay, so say more. Samoa was in great form uh, May into June into July. Buried a couple fields at Churchill, was running really nice. Last weekend, eh, not so nice. Uh, but Spice is Nice really handled her when she was really in form. I, I, I don't know. I, I think this horse is some. But who you got? Who, who you taking? Fire Coral? I, <laughs> it was hard for me. I, I liked, I mean, I think the two most likely winners are Swiss Skydiver and Crystal Ball. I don't like Spice is Nice. Um, if I had to pick a bomber, then it would be Bonnie South. But I think I'm more on Ryan's page here with the, a Swiss Skydiver romp. And then everybody starts going crazy asking questions of, uh, should she be in the Derby? Will she be in the Derby? What's she going to do? And um, it'll make an interesting storyline. So we'll see. Hey, Andrew, stick, I'll give you 10 to stick 1. With the winner. Stick with the winner, Andrew. That's a good strategy, buddy. Hey, Andrew, oh, I'll give you 10 to 1 crystal week. ball. Gonna, we are going to do another around the horn. We're going to get there. Uh, but uh, look for that next week. Uh, any thoughts before we finish up, Stu? Um, I thought I thought this card Saturday for Saratoga, it's a nice change of pace. The last few weeks have been chalky. Um, I think this Saturday it sets up for not-so-talk chalky. I don't think that Decorated Invader and Swiss Skydiver have to win. Most likely, they're the most likely winners. But this is actually one of the few times I've, I've been able to say, like, they don't have to win. I think race seven is wide open. I really think race 10, the uh, that allowance race is super wide open. I'd be surprised if there was a horse um, under seven to two. Um, and, and the last race is always, you know, that three-year-old New York maiden claiming that they throw at the end. I mean, just take everybody and their brother. Um <laughs> So I think there's money this weekend to be made, and uh, hopefully uh, we we add to uh, the funds, huh, Andrew? Yeah, I mean we gotta we gotta build the bankroll, build the bankroll, so that we can uh, push every button on the uh, the first Saturday in September and lose it. And hey, we we gotta pay for Ryan Dickey's appearance fees at some point. <laughs> that that receipt's coming due, brother. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll let you we'll let you slide another another couple of months or so. Yeah, just let him bask in the glory of victory, and he won't ask for any money. You sit on a throne of lies, my friend. I, know, I am I know. coming for you next week. I, you, as you should, as you should. I might bounce. I'll, I will probably bounce. I will say that right now. All right, bounce guys. candidate. You heard it here first. Yep. <laughs> Lots of fun as usual. Thanks for joining, Stu, Ryan, and we will see you guys next time. Thanks.